Thank you. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, it's so good to be with you. I enjoy every time I get the opportunity to be here at Lake Mary. And as we've been saying, we're here in the midst of our Advent season at Summit, and we're studying one of my favorite chapters in actually all of the Bible, uh, John chapter 1. And this is where John, although if you were to read it, you might not think of this right off the top of your head. This is actually John chapter 1, a Christmas story. Uh, this is John's version of the Christmas story. There's uh, three other Gospels by Matthew, Mark, um, and Luke. And from those stories, we get more the traditional account that we would all associate with the Christmas story, the birth of Jesus, Jesus in a manger. Uh, and, and we have all of those symbols going on in our society of major scenes that our kids are involved with in the church plays and uh, the famous Linus quotation of Luke chapter 1 and Charlie Brown's Christmas. Uh, that all comes from those three Gospels. But, but John's take on, on Christmas is gloriously cosmic in its approach. And I just love this. We just read the account. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was God, God who has no beginning and no end. He is the Word who spoke the very universe, including your and my heart, into existence. The word who is light, that brings light into the darkness. The word who brings life to all mankind. And John simply says so beautifully and powerfully, the word became flesh. His rendition of the Christmas stories. The Old Testament writers called him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Jesus was that in the most literal sense of the word. And so John, in his writing of the gospel, is passionate about something. He's passionate that people who were the recipients of his gospel would come to a point where they would put their faith in Jesus, and in doing so, they would find life. He states it very, very clearly in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. He says, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the book of John the Gospel of John, is John building a case so that we all who read it will come to the point where we will believe in Jesus. That's his whole purpose. And so like anyone who's building a case, he begins his argument by bringing forth witnesses. And he brings forth witness after witness after witness, almost as if to bring forth this just so overwhelming, compelling case that by the end of the reading, we will go, yes, it's true. Let me put my faith there. Uh, let me read again for us um, John uh, chapter 1 in uh, verse 6. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me. Um, or you can look at the bulletin that we've printed the passage for you to follow along. So I'm going to read a couple verses. We'll explain them. And then we'll just kind of make our way through so you can keep it open with you during the course of this message. Verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. All right, and so what he, who he's talking about is John the Baptist. We're going to learn a little bit more about him as we continue to go on. But you see here just right in the beginning, right in the sixth verse of chapter 1, that he's starting to build his case, and he's bringing forth witnesses, of which we will see many in the course here. Now, the kind of witness he's talking about is more a witness that you would see in a courtroom, all right? Uh, this isn't kind of the churchy sort of, hey, Jeff, can I get a witness this morning type thing. Uh, 
this is more uh, witnesses that we would see in someone who's building a case to try to convince you of something. All right, now think about what we believe. Because John was in a season where it was not popular to believe. He knows what we're up against. In John's time of the writing of this gospel, the church, this very, very small and and emerging church, was under severe persecution. John watched his uh, fellow disciples, his fellow apostles, all of whom were being martyred and killed in time for their bold stands for, uh, for Christ and for them sharing what they had seen and heard as some of the witnesses. And so John knows what we're up against. Now, I want you to, I know most people here this morning are are Christ followers, but I want you to step out of that for a minute and think about what it is that we say and we purport to believe. We believe that dead people will live again. We believe that by putting our faith in Christ, we will rise again and be given a new heavenly body that we will live eternally in his presence, serving with him and for him for all eternity. We believe that all of our sins can be forgiven in Christ and that we've been given a new power and a new life and restored to the abundant life that is available to us now because of what Christ has done on the cross. We believe some pretty amazing things. And if you didn't grow up in the church and if you didn't have any idea about what the true message of Christianity was, when you hear this, it sounds too good to be true. It almost sounds absurd. It's like somebody's made it up in this sci-fi movie going on over here. But then there's those in our culture, and you know this, that not only see this as absurd, but dangerous. And so they set out with vehemence and with rigor to try to silence the message of Christianity. And this is exactly what was going on in John's time. Now, continuing with this train of thought, if you were trying to stamp out Christianity... What would be your strategy? How would you go about doing this if you wanted to silence the Christian voice? Well, you could basically be critical in the media. You could remove any vestige of Christianity from our education system. You could make fun of it in the entertainment world. You could even make it so awkward to even say something as simple as Merry Christmas to our barista over at Starbucks. And certainly that's a strategy that is being used today. You could also be more vehement, like what John was facing in different parts of the church around the world is facing even today, where you could try to intimidate and even kill those who were following Jesus. Well, those are two things you can do, but if you really want to take it away, if you want Christianity to go away, uh, let me give you an illustration. Have you, ever, have you ever played Jenga? Anybody know what that game is? You might play it over the holidays here. Well, Jenga is a game where you build a tower out of wooden blocks. They're kind of long little wooden blocks, and you kind of build this tower, and then you take turns pulling one of the blocks out of the tower. And and so each person will take a turn, and the, the tower becomes more and more unstable until that one person comes along, and they pull one of the blocks, and it comes crashing down. All right, this is the game Jenga. It's actually quite fun. So if Christianity was the Jenga tower, the block that you need to remove to make the whole thing fall is this. Disprove that Jesus lived, that he died, and that he rose again. If you can take that away, the whole thing's a hoax. Pack it up, folks. Go home. Because it's not true if you can make that claim. And so this is exactly what Dr. Simon Greenleaf 
tried to do uh, back in the early 1800s. And, and what was so in, in interesting about this and his attempt to disprove uh, Christianity is he was eminently qualified as someone to be able to do that. He was the guy that wrote a three-volume, massive volume, treatise on legal evidence. He put Harvard Law School on the map. Right, this is the guy that today our uh, system of jurisprudence and being able to verify and corroborate evidence to determine what actually happened, we still use his stuff. And so he was an atheist and an agnostic. And so he set out to disprove the claims of Christianity by applying his method for evidence to the evidence that exists for the resurrection of Jesus. And after his exhaustive work, here's what he said. According to the laws of legal evidence used in the courts of law, there is more evidence for the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ than for just about any other event in history. Isn't that amazing? This is the man who wrote the book. And he examined the claims of Christ. You see, John understands this. He knows the importance of credible witnesses in any case. So he shares witness after witness after witness in his gospel. Why? So that we would believe. And in believing, we would find life. So let me just invite you this morning. If you're wrestling with the question of who is Jesus, read the gospel of John. It'll help you a lot. Now, let me give you a brief summary. I'm going to kind of go loyally on you, if you will. And I'm going to lay out the case. I'm going to present the witnesses that John presents. And there's nine of them. You ready? We're going to go pretty fast here. The first witness is none other than God the Father. That's a good lead witness, wouldn't you say? We're going to lead with God. John 18.8, Jesus says, The Father who sent me bears witness about me. And so the scriptures record that God uh, actually spoke with an audible voice for those in the presence to be able to hear that this is my son and who I am well pleased, listen to him. God himself is the witness to Christ. Secondarily, Jesus was a witness to himself. Like in our court system today, one's own testimony is a vital aspect of any case. And Jesus said this in John 8, 14, if I do bear witness about myself, my witness is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. And so we see the witness of Christ in the New Testament. And if you know anything about Jesus, you've got to take all of him. You can't just say he was a good teacher. You can't just say he was a great moral example. You can't just say he's my best buddy. Uh, none of that flies. All right, you've either got to take it all or not. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said so powerfully in his book, Mirror Christianity. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish things that people say about Jesus. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we may, must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him. You can kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet as, and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. 
He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So well written. The third witness that Jesus points to is his works. The works that I do, I do in my Father's name. They bear witness about me, John 10, 25. And this is an important emphasis in John that we see, uh, especially in the first half of the gospel, uh, an emphasis on the works of Jesus that demonstrate the power and the authority of God that he had to be able to do the miracles that he did. The fourth witness that's presented is the Old Testament, and it points us to Jesus. Every page in the Old Testament whispers his name, and here's what he says. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, John 5, 39. So we have Jesus, we are the Father, we have Jesus, we have his works, we have the scriptures. Well, the fifth one is, is the fifth witness is one of the prophecies from the Old Testament that points to Jesus. Uh, that there's going to be a forerunner who comes before him, uh, someone who is like Elijah the prophet who becomes before Jesus is to enter into his ministry. And this is speaking of none other than John the Baptist. John was the cousin of Jesus. He was six months older. He was born six months before Jesus. And he's an interesting fella. And first of all, think about it. He knew Jesus since they played together. They grew up together. They were family And he had a bird's eye front row seat of his life. And he is one of the powerful witnesses and prophets. Jesus said of John the Baptist, he's the greatest person who ever lived. Wouldn't you love that? If Jesus is here this morning and said, you're the greatest person that ever lived. I think you'd walk out of here feeling pretty good this morning. And that's John the Baptist. This is how Matthew describes him. He says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven. It has come near. This is he who has spoken through the prophet Isaiah, a voice calling out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair. He had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. I don't think I'll be going to that restaurant anytime soon. Um, People went out from him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of Jordan confessing their sins. And they were baptizing him in the Jordan River. As you can see, he is quite the uh, eclectic character, but he was recognized by the people as this powerful prophet, and he had this hard-hitting message that we were to repent, and that he especially was hard-hitting with the religious elite leaders of his day. He would say to them things like, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. I baptize you in water for repentance, but after me comes one who's more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. And he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. How'd you like to get that on a Christmas card this this Christmas? I think that'd be kind of cool. All right, so we see this witness there that John the Baptist, uh, amazing. A sixth witness is given by the men and the women who were changed by Jesus when they encountered him in the various gospel accounts. We see uh, the woman at the well. What did she do? The first thing she did is went out and told the whole village about Jesus. We see the man born blind. When Jesus opens up his eyes, he's taking on the religious leaders and being a, a witness for what God had done in his life. Time and again, we see when people are changed by Christ, they immediately begin sharing their story with others. And so it is with the 12 disciples. They're the seventh witness. He says to them, you will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. And what a powerful witness they are. 
because these were the guys that at the time Jesus was being crucified, they were hunkered down, hiding in this upper room so that no one would find them in fear for their own lives. And then they encountered the risen Christ. And you know the story, what ended up happening. They were all martyred. John survived his attempt. They boiled him in oil, and so he survived that, and they banished him, exiled to the island of Patmos where he died. You don't die for a lie. These guys who were once just cowering in fear became bold, courageous storytellers of Jesus. They're the seventh witness. The eighth is none other than the Holy Spirit. John 15, 26, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, he proceeds from the Father and he will bear witness about me. Pretty compelling case, wouldn't you say? But there's actually a ninth witness, and I love this one. The ninth witness are those who read John's gospel and believe. You know who that is? That's you and me. We're the ninth witness that John talks about. We're the ones that, that if we are followers of Christ, if you know Jesus, you're a witness. And you're establishing, or you're essential in establishing the good news for the people that God has given you to love. Now, the other day, I heard my wife uh, talking with someone uh, about a specific doctor and in, in her area of specialty and just how awesome she is. Um, and, and it's it's great. I mean, we do this sort of thing. We talk about the great doctor that we have. We talk about the hairdresser or the barber that we love. We talk about uh, the, the performance that we saw and how great the actors were, the businessman or woman who's doing such a good job in their business. We glorify people all the time. It's a normal part of our conversation. So why is it so hard to talk about the one person who's changed our lives the most? Isn't he worthy of the most glory? You see... I hope that Jesus has changed our lives more than our hairdresser. And so God wants us to be a witness. I, I love this story from uh, an evangelist. His name is Harry Ironside. And that's an awesome name for an evangelist. I like that. Um, and he was once preaching outdoors in San Francisco in the early 1900s when a famous atheist approached him and he gave him a card and it read, Sir, I challenge you to a debate. Uh, and to debate me with this question, agnosticism versus Christianity. And we'll do that in the Academy of the Science Hall next Sunday afternoon at 4 o'clock. And so old Ironside read the card aloud and replied. This was his reply. I'm very much interested in this challenge. Therefore, I'll be glad to agree to this debate on the following conditions. Namely, in order to prove that there is something worth fighting for and worth debating about, my opponent will promise to bring with him to the hall next Sunday two people. One man who was for years what we commonly call a down-and-outer. A man who for years was under the power of evil habits from which he could not deliver himself. But one who on some occasion heard the glorification of agnosticism and its denunciations of the Bible and Christianity. And having heard this, this man's heart and mind must have been so deeply stirred that he went away from the meeting saying, from now on, I'm an agnostic. And as a result of imbibing that particular philosophy, he found that a new power had all of a sudden come into his life. The sins he once loved, he now hates. And the righteousness and goodness are now ideals of his life, all because he decided to be an agnostic. He then said, also bring a woman who has similarly delivered from corrupt living by the power of unbelief. 
So there was his challenge. Ironside said, if you'll supply those two individuals, I will bring with me at least 100 men and women who for years have lived in such sinful degradation as I've tried to depict here, but have been gloriously saved through believing the gospel, which you now ridicule. And I'll have these men and women with me on the platform as well as witnesses to the miraculous saving power of Jesus Christ as a present day proof of the truth of the Bible. At this, the atheist walked away, for while Ironside could easily produce 100 men and women transformed by the light of Jesus Christ, the secular debater could not provide even one who had been changed by his philosophy. Isn't that great? I just love that. And that's who we are. Do you know Jesus? You're a witness. You've got a story to tell. We're essential in establishing the good news for the people around us who don't know it. And so I want to ask you this morning, are you telling your story and are you telling it truthfully to others? You don't have to give the cleaned up version. We don't clean up to come to Jesus. We come to Jesus because we need to get cleaned. All right. And so we come to him and he transforms us. And now we've got a story to tell. I love the way Zach says this. and He says it often. Your story told truthfully is good news to others. So we're the ninth witness as a part of God's plan. And as we do this, as we engage in passing along this gift of sharing our story about how God's light has come into our darkness, John goes on in this passage to tell us how people will respond. And there's a various uh, three different responses that we want to focus on here together. So let's read verses 9 and 11. John says, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which is his own, but his own did not receive him. Okay, so we see two of the three responses that he talks about right here. The first one is the world, the very world that Jesus made. It gives the idea here that he's coming to his creation. He's coming to the people that he created and he knows intimately, and they didn't recognize him. Uh, talk about the ultimate episode of Undercover Boss here, huh? I, I like that show. You know, the boss kind of uh, goes undercover so people don't know who they are, and they come and kind of figure out what's going on in the company. Well, Jesus comes, and no one recognizes who he is. Now, it wasn't because he was off in obscurity, all right? He was certainly the talk of the town. People knew he was there. And, and to put it in today's context, he would be driving the 24-hour news cycle, Right? He would be exploding Twitterverse with the latest things that he was saying and he was doing. People knew all about him, and it was demanding a response from them. So the first response John talks about is they simply didn't recognize him. Some people saw him as a good man, John 7, 12. Other people, they thought he was a prophet and a really powerful religious leader, Matthew 21, 11. And some even wanted to make him king by force. All of those are pretty positive responses, but none of them are who he really is. Emmanuel. God came to live with us and among us. The savior of the world, the light shining into darkness. They missed him. They didn't recognize him. And so today, why do people miss him? Well, I think 
in our culture, and I've seen this is different in different cultures around the world that I've had a chance to travel to, but in our culture, I think one of the main reasons why people miss them is they just don't know they're in darkness and they don't know they're lost. That's just a common response in our, in our culture. I remember the time uh, we, we lived in the Midwest and uh, my uh, in-laws lived in Indiana, so we would go to the Indiana State Fair. Now, this is a huge deal in Indiana. This is really fun. All right? And it was one of those uh, hot summer days and the place is always packed. And this is the time when our oldest daughter, who's this just wonderful free spirit and has always been that way. And by the way, our oldest daughter is pregnant with our first grandbaby. I'm really excited about that. And so when she was three or four at the time, uh, we were at the Indiana State Fair, and it was jam-packed. And I still remember, because I always look this way, because that's where I remember looking at Jill. And Jill and I were separate, but we could see each other. And that moment when we recognized Stephanie is not with Jill, and Stephanie is not with me, and Stephanie is not with Mama or Papa. And it's like, you know, bustling, smacking into people. I mean, it was crowded. And it was like, oh, no, we're young parents. And it took forever to find her. Those were just some horrific moments. Your heart is racing. Your mind is just going crazy. Where's our daughter? Are we ever going to see her again? How are we going to find her in this just mass of people? Well, Jill wisely went over to the place just kind of, you know, a couple hundred yards up uh, where there was a little area of petting baby animals. And so Stephanie was over by the little pen by the baby pigs, and she's just playing with the baby pigs, kind of doing her thing. Uh, And she had no idea she was lost. She was having the time of her life. It was great. Mom and dad were just beside themselves, right? Um, And and I think that's just a, a picture of today, especially in our culture. Today, for the most part, life seems overall going well. Sure, we have dark times and there's difficulties, and I don't mean to minimize that for anybody who's experiencing that this morning. But in general, in our society, life goes well. We get jobs and we can afford a house and many times multiple ways of transporting ourselves around and have a little bit left over to go do some fun things and maybe even put a little bit aside for our future. And so we don't sense this this lostness, this need to be found, the darkness that's in our lives. So we miss him. There's a second response that happens, and John, as we read, says, he came unto his own, and his own did not recognize him, or they did not receive him, excuse me. This is a more overt and intentional rejection. These people understand quite clearly the claims of Jesus, and what he's saying about himself, and they reject it outright. And even seeing him as a danger to society and a voice that needs to be silent. We see this response in the New Testament. Many people said he was a false teacher that leads people astray, John 7, 12. A madman who's demon-possessed, John 10, 20. And the Pharisees attributed the miracles that Jesus was doing as works of the devil. They were taking the works of God and ascribing them to the works of the devil. Certainly, we see similar responses in our society, again, uh, where we're trying to eradicate any vestige of Christianity from our schoolrooms to our media outlets to our entertainment industry and all aspects of culture. You see, for many in our society, light is an unwanted intrusion. They prefer darkness. They've acclimated themselves to the darkness. They feel comfortable there. And as if someone was turning on the lights, they want to put their head back underneath the pillow and say, don't do that. It's too painful. 
And so they would rather stay in darkness than going through the pain of coming to the light. And so we see the responses that John faced are no different than the ones we face today. Some don't understand who he is. Some reject it outright. But fortunately, there's a third response that John talks about. And we find that in, in verses 12 and 13 um, in John chapter 1. Let me read those for you. Yet all who did receive him to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children, not born, or children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. This is the group of people that actually recognize they're in darkness. This is the group of people that experience something going on in their soul that they know is not right, and they know, I can't fix this. No matter what I do, I keep ending up back here. And so they long for someone or something to come rescue them from the darkness that they know that is inside of them, and they will not give themselves a free pass through self-justification. They're desperate for the miracle that their soul desperately needs. Do you remember the scene from Apollo 13? I, I love this movie. As you recall, it's the movie that tells us the story of the Apollo moon mission uh, that went crazily awry and uh, the spacecraft um, endured or went through a severe mechanical failure. And so the mission changed from simply getting them to the moon to trying to get them back to Earth safely. And it literally captivated the nation uh, during the days in which this story was unfolding. And, uh, and so in this movie that is just so brilliant, Tom Hanks plays Jim Lovell, the commander of, of the spacecraft. And, uh, and as he's, um, they're trying to figure out getting them back uh, to Earth they're playing um, an interview on TV that Jim Lovell tells about the days when he was in the military. And they're doing this to kind of illustrate he's been in peril before. And it's a powerful scene where his wife is watching her husband on TV. And he tells this story that when he was a, uh, a combat pilot, um, he was coming back from one of his missions. And of course, it was combat situations, so the aircraft carrier, the lights were off. And uh, as he was flying back, his navigation system went dead. And so he, he couldn't navigate. So he pulled out the map, and he was going to try to uh, come up with the coordinates to try to figure out where the uh, ship might be. And as he did so, the whole cockpit shut down, and there was no lights in the cockpit. And so in that scary moment, he just contemplated, this is probably it. All right, I, I can't see, I can't navigate, we're going to have to ditch the plane, and, and, and I'm going to be in the ocean, and who, no one will know really where I'm at. This is probably it. So as he looked out the cockpit window below, he actually saw something uh, that, that was strangely beautiful. It was in the wake of the ship, it stirs up plankton, and it gives off this this light, this, this blue hue that he was able to recognize what it was. It was the ship's wake stirring up the plankton, and it was the light that was going to lead him home. And so he just simply turned his plane to follow the light, and he got saved. And so he tells the story that he is a man of faith, and he believes that God caused his cockpit light to just go out, because if the light was in the cockpit, he wouldn't have seen the illumination below. It was that faint. But that allowed him to see his way home. You see, light in the darkness for Jim Lovell is what saved his life. And that's the point. Light is life. 
to those who've lost their way. And so as many as received him, as many as recognized that they were lost, as many as recognized that they're in darkness, as many as welcomed the light to lead them out of that darkness, he gave the right to be called children of God by believing in his name and in doing so, we have life. Light leads us home. Light leads us to the life God designed for us. Light is life if you're lost. And so simply this morning, my friends, this is the good news we celebrate this Christmas season. Isn't it great? Let me just encourage you, revel in it. Soak it in. Enjoy it. This is what it's about. It's more than just the hustle and bustle and the gift giving. This is our season to celebrate Emmanuel, the light shining in the darkness. And then let me encourage you as you enjoy it, give the gift of passing it on. This is what we're here for, telling our story truthfully. And I guarantee you there's someone in your life that God will use you as you take that step of just talking about the one that changed your life. Let's pray.